and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited today because we're going to talk about the vaccine. I'm going to field Q&A uh, questions that we've been getting from the community, from you all, from the listeners over the last week. Actually, and some of them going as far as back as some of our first calls that we ever took on. And I'm saying this because I'm excited, right? This isn't science's outcome, but this human being outcomes, right? That is the vaccine. And so in this dark time of the pandemic, this is one of the silver linings. The other silver linings, you may ask, well, what are they, Dr. G? Is this, these community calls. You amazing community leaders coming in every Friday, listening to us, spreading that information out, and we hear about it. Kimberly and I get emails, get phone calls, talking about how you all continue doing amazing work to keep your community safe, to promote health, and prevent disease. So there are dark times. We'll go into the numbers in a second. I get it. You know, the numbers continue getting worse. But I promise you what will end this pandemic will be human beings at their best, both to stop the spread through those hygienic interventions and allocating resources, in addition to the role of the vaccine. So humans, you know, we're faced with this pandemic that impacts human lives, and humans will be the ones who restore our lives back, and we'll do it. And I promise you, and these calls play a role in it because you all continue to take that information and get it out to your loved ones, your households, your neighbors, and your communities and your congregations. So thank you. That is why there's a positive tone in my voice. I feel like we need some positivity. And it is a new year, and we're hoping this is the year the pandemic ends. With that said, I'm going to go over the numbers just to remind us, keep us grounded of where we're at, and then we'll transition right in, right off the bat, right into the vaccine conversation. I will say the vaccine conversations as we answer the Q&A, um, I'm excited. We'll go over the science of it, of course, tackle some of the uh, questions you may have. But two things I want to set, for, uh, set first. Uh, two things I want to set. One is I will only answer questions about the current FDA-approved vaccines. Now, the caveat there, the FDA approval, keep in mind, it's FDA approved for emergency use. So it's not the same type of FDA approval, say, that we have for Tylenol and so forth, right? So these vaccines got a different entranceway into the general public. So I'm going to talk about those. If you have questions, for instance, about India's uh, vaccine that they just approved about two weeks ago, I don't have that much information on it. I apologize. And second, I will definitely focus on the science and go over a little bit about the distribution as much as I know. It may not be a lot, and I apologize, um, but I, will, we, I promise you, Kimberly and I will keep you all updated by emails and so forth as we learn in real time. So I'll do just that. So let's go over the numbers right now. In regards to the global world, we are at 93,702,496, meaning probably within this month or early February, we may cross the 100 million mark of COVID-19, just as FYI. In regards to deaths globally, we are at 2 million 5,980, giving us a global mortality rate of 2.1%. Here in the U.S., we have 23,865,062 cases, with deaths at 398,230, giving us a mortality rate of 1.7%. Also meaning, likely sometime over this weekend, as we're all celebrating the memory and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., who will likely cross the 400th mark of COVID-19-related deaths here in the United States. Here in Maryland, we have 320,739 cases, and deaths are at 6,322, giving us a mortality rate within the state of Maryland at 2%. So yes, those numbers don't look encouraging, I understand. However, that positive tone you heard in my voice to start off these calls, even with a little bit of a joke, it's going to retain during this hour with you all. Because the conversation about the vaccine, 
to give you all the understanding that you need to feel comfortable with it, the understanding that you need so you can disseminate this information, that's going to be powerful. Just like the hygienic interventions we've emphasized with physical distancing, face masking, and washing of the hands, same thing with the vaccine. So, Kimberly, my friend, without further ado, let's dive into it. Great. Thank you, Dr. G. So first, can I get the vaccine if I am pregnant? So that is a great question. And the answer is yes, meaning being pregnant was not an exclusion to getting the vaccine when the research trials were happening. With that said, like a lot of women who were pregnant received vaccine, meaning of all the 40,000 people enrolled for Pfizer and the 40,000 enrolled in Moderna, Pfizer had 13 women who were pregnant to receive the vaccine and 10 women in the Moderna trial received the vaccine. Those women, no complications. Maybe, I, I believe they're still pregnant, so they didn't deliver the children yet. You know, that's some of the data that they'll report back to maintain transparency. But it has been proven, well, it has been shown at this moment to be safe for women who are pregnant. If you happen to be pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, though, I will always say talk with your healthcare professional to see if the vaccine should be appropriate for you. Not just even a COVID vaccine, just vaccines in general should be discussed with your obstetrician and gynecologist just because, you know, they know your prior medical history much better than, say, Dr. G does over the phone. But with the women, so uh, 23 women total who were enrolled in Pfizer and Moderna collectively received the vaccine while pregnant and no adverse events were documented for them. So more to come, of course, as they deliver their children and so forth. But I can tell you the opposite is probably much more worse, right? Getting COVID while pregnant. I've actually had to care for patients in that dire situation and um, not great outcomes. So right now, my recommendation is talk to your healthcare professionals. In the two uh, FDA-approved studies, uh, the vaccines, they did document women who were pregnant and received it and no adverse events were documented in that. So back to you, Kimberly. Thank you, Dr. G. So if I already had COVID-19, should I still get the vaccine? Great question, great question. I love this question. So we're gonna walk through this in a little bit of a stage. So right off the bat, you recognize that, you know, COVID-19, getting it, not everyone's going to experience the same outcomes, right? Some people won't feel anything, no symptoms. Some people will have a really bad, it feels like almost like a flu or cold, that you'll be home for, you know, days to weeks. Others struggling for their lives. So that diverse spectrum of COVID-19 disease in our population also means there's a diverse immune memory afterwards, where if your body I promise you, saw this SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, as nothing more than your typical coronavirus that causes a common cold. You may have formed a kind of immune memory with the antibodies for maybe a few weeks, maybe at the most a few months, and it goes away. We know this. Coronaviruses, the ones that cause a common cold, your immune memory is no more than about three months. That's why most of us get these infections over and over again every year. Those with more severe cases of COVID-19 that were life-threatening in the hospital or in life support. Yes, those individuals may carry the antibodies, the immune memory, the immune memory for quite some time. How long? We don't know. We know some of them do carry it for about six months. I say this because that variability with regards to how COVID-19 impacts you is going to create a variability in how much your immune, immune memory will remember it. And that's why, yes, you should still get the vaccine if you've had COVID-19. In regards to the studies with Pfizer and Moderna, they did look at patients who had COVID-19. Not actively at the moment, right? If you were actively infected, they did not enroll you. But they did ask you if you had it. And if you said yes or no, that's a checkbox. But even if you said no, they tested you for antibodies. And they found many persons enrolled in these studies with those antibodies, and they still recruited them. 
and no dire adverse events were found in them. Now, why get the vaccine if you've gone through it? It has to do with exactly what I was saying earlier. We all have a variable response to COVID-19. Vaccines, the science behind it, isn't just to mount an immune memory. It's to mount one that will have some permanence, or at a minimum of six months of memory. Right, because that makes sense. You want to pass that seasonal moment if it's the flu shot, or you want to have the immune memory for quite some time, especially if you're at a vulnerable stage of your life. So we tweak the vaccine just like you would tweak a recipe for food, right? Do you want enough sugar, enough salt just to get the taste just right? That's what we do with vaccine technology. In the phase one trials, we go over about a dozen different doses for every new vaccine to make sure that it mounts the immune response without any adverse events or significant adverse events. So, yes, the vaccine you will get will provide you uniformly from one person to another an immune memory that we believe will last you for quite some time and will provide you the security that you need to not develop COVID-19. Hopefully that was, sorry for a long answer and a little bit of immunology there to our listeners, but the simple answer at the end is still get the vaccine, yes, if you've had COVID-19. Back to you, Kimberly. Oh, that was great. Thank you. And kind of a follow-up to that, can you reiterate the importance of us still wearing our masks, washing our hands, and social distancing after we have gotten the vaccine? Yes, 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 yes. So this is for those after you've gotten the vaccine. So a vaccine's purpose is to prevent disease. The ideal vaccine, like the smallpox one, right? I don't know if any of our listeners have your smallpox scar. My mom has one. But that smallpox vaccine initially prevented disease and then ultimately stopped the transmission of the virus. May 8th. 1980, the World Health Organization declared the world smallpox-free. Well, granted, you can still find it in a few labs in America and in Russia, but yes, to the general public, it is free. So a vaccine will always start. Its goal is, can we just prevent the disease? It doesn't mean it's going to stop transmission. Why? In order to stop transmission, right, meaning the spread of the virus, you need a significant amount of people to have received the vaccine, right? Somewhere for smallpox, you needed, actually smallpox, I believe you needed somewhere around 60 to 70%, and that was achieved in the, in the world. For the flu shot, right, one that we're probably more familiar with, how many of our listeners potentially got the flu vaccine and then, you know, weeks later got the flu? But if you recount how you felt with the flu, you may have felt horrible, but you did not have life-threatening disease, right? That's the aim of the flu shot. It's not to have the life-threatening disease. Why you still got the flu, though, is because unless about 90% of the people in our community receive the flu shot, the virus will still be transmittable. We'll go from one person to another until it finds someone they can sit down with because they don't have any immunity. So the first goal of every vaccine is can you prevent disease? This, these two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, have proven just that. 94% in the Pfizer vaccine, 95% in Moderna. By the way, both of them, for the age of 75 and older, 100% effective at preventing COVID, severe COVID-19. So they will stop the uh, onset of COVID-19, the disease in a severe form. However, they won't stop the transmission. You'll, if you've been vaccinated, you may get the virus, feel nothing, right, because you're vaccinated. Your body's like, no, no, can't be in here. You're not going to cause any symptoms. We know how to fight you. But you may still spread it to someone else. The only way for transmission to stop is if enough people have been vaccinated, right, close to 80%. So until then, even if you've gotten the vaccine, go out and emerge in public. That's great, but continue wearing your face mask. Continue wearing it because you don't know if you could catch it and pass it on to someone else, right? You can say, hey, I'm already protected, I, I know, but wear that face mask still for someone else who potentially may not have been vaccinated yet. So that's why we would emphasize that. 
enough people get vaccinated, then face masks come off. Maybe we still don't shake hands. I'm, I'm hoping handshaking goes out the window. But, um, you know, until enough people get vaccinated, the hygienic intervention should still be emphasized 100%. Now, I will say, with that answer that I'm giving you, much of that answer is extrapolated, right, because of the flu and the smallpox conversation. With SARS-CoV-2, there is strong belief to suspect that we can transmit it even if we've been vaccinated to others, and that's why those who have been vaccinated should wear masks. I say this because we are actively studying that in real time. Just like our first call with Dr. Z, we said what we say here, a lot of it is good hypotheses. We're testing it in real time. So if we end up being wrong, we'll come back and let you know. Or if we end up being right, we'll come back and let you know. But the leading thought from every scientist and physician is that we are still likely able to transmit it even if we've been vaccinated. So back to you, Kimberly. Thank you, Dr. G. Can children get the vaccine at this time? So at this time, with the two FDA-approved vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, the youngest you can get is 16 years of age. The reason is exactly what Dr. Bumpus told us last week. When you do vaccine trials, you don't recruit children and adults at the same time. One group of scientists recruits adults. The other group recruits children. Recruiting children takes a little bit longer, right? And that makes sense. There's a lot of appropriate medical and legal red tape to go through to make sure everyone feels comfortable in getting the vaccine. So will children have access to a vaccine in the near future? They will. My suspicion, my suspicion is likely around late spring, early summer for the vaccine to be available for kids. With that said, with that said, you know, you're like, oh, does that mean they won't go back to school? No, actually, we are focusing, especially with the next rollout of vaccines here in the state of Maryland, the 1B category, educators are on that. So regardless of age, if you have a state license to be a teacher or you, know, you work at a, a preschool or a nursery or something, you can get the vaccine, right, to protect the teachers because I believe the goal is to ultimately get kids back into school. So for the time being, children are not, right, unless you're 16 years to 8, the 16 or 17, you can get it. Um, but for the time being, younger kids, we don't have a vaccine at this moment that is approved by the FDA to be distributed. Back to you, Kimberly. So talking about Pfizer and Moderna, why, why do we need two doses? And why three or four weeks apart? Right. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. So going back to that analogy of cooking. And we're right around lunchtime, so hopefully we're getting people a little bit hungry. So everyone knows that, you know, when you want to um, cook something, right, you take your, you know, you add the right ingredients and so forth. You don't want to overdo it. You don't want to make it too sweet. You don't want to make it too salty, right? I say this because could you, in theory, give that vaccine shot all in one time? The answer is yes. In some of the early trials of vaccine, right, because the, the FDA approved it at phase three. Phase three, you recruit 40,000-plus people that look like the populations that are being ravaged by this. Phase one, you really just recruit healthy people. Healthy, no pre-existing conditions, because if something bad happens, they should be strong enough to tolerate it. And so we asked them, you know, hey, just one shot. How are you going to do? They were miserable. They were horribly miserable that even with young, healthy individuals with no pre-existing conditions, that kind of massive immune response would likely not be well tolerated in people with pre-existing conditions or that are older. So knowing you get that massive immune response with one dose, to mitigate that response, you break it up. Now, the ideal breakup is back-to-back, is -back, just two. Why? Because, well, if you have to go back in for a third or fourth, you're probably going to be losing a lot of people coming back for those vaccine shots. So the answer, Kimberly, is to not make people feel horribly miserable right off the bat. And I promise you that immune response, even with a second shot, and you know, truth be told, as you know, a few, many of my colleagues were discussing this yesterday in one of our meetings, everyone felt something. There's maybe for every one colleague who didn't feel any symptoms, 
there were three or four who were like, no, I got, had some chills. I had a good night's rest because I was just worn out. So people are acknowledging that the second shot, your immune system is revved up a little bit. So that's why we split it. Why three weeks and four weeks? That's just when we felt, you know, that, that comes back to that phase one trial and phase two as well. Where can we implement it so people don't feel horribly miserable? Mild, mild symptoms people were okay with, the scientists and the, the people they recruited, but really drastic ones, as we were discussing earlier, that likely people with pre-existing conditions or older age wouldn't be able to tolerate. That's what we did in Run and Replicate. So we realized, hey, one week was too soon. Two weeks, still too soon. Three weeks, great for Pfizer. Four weeks, great for Moderna. So that's, that's the answer. So it's kind of the same answer for both questions. Why those weeks apart and why not just one shot? I will say, we'll say what's interesting in an unintentional consequence of what happened at the Capitol building last week, many of those uh, politicians were vaccinated, but were still in the same room with others with coronavirus. And those who still were vaccinated ended up still getting the virus and having symptoms. So this is why we want to emphasize, you know, neither trial looked into, oh, just one shot, is that enough? Neither trial did that. But I think last week's example, kind of a small cohort, of course, a small group, but it still shows why you need a second shot to get us 94 to 95% effective to preventing COVID-19. So Kimberly, hopefully I tackled both questions uh, with almost the same answer to some extent. So I know you mentioned earlier that you were only going to talk about the Pfizer and Moderna, but do you have any information that you could share as far as an update on where um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is? Yes. So the two leading candidates when this new year came that we were excited, we were going to be like, oh, my gosh, we're going to have, you know, up to four vaccines by the time February rolls around. AstraZeneca, which is researched out of here, out of Hopkins, and Moderna was researched out of University of Maryland. AstraZeneca has been pushed back probably until about March or April. Dr. Bumpus from last week brought that up as well. A lot of it, not because of the science, just had to do with a little bit more other reasons. But keep in mind, AstraZeneca is approved in both India and the United Kingdom. Johnson & Johnson, for my last insight, is looking to be uh, the data submitted end of January, beginning of February, to go ahead with the FDA trials like you saw with Moderna and you saw with Pfizer. Why Kimberly's making that question, bringing it to light, you're like, all right, why, you know, we already have two vaccines, why bring up another one? Well, the reason why Kimberly's doing that is because Johnson & Johnson is the only one-shot vaccine, which is great because it's probably a lot more practical for the general population. So right now, as we're rolling out to healthcare workers, nursing home residents, of those 75 years and older, end of the month will go to 65 years and older. By the time Johnson Johnson gets approved, it likely will be the vaccine for the general population. That's my suspicion. You'll probably still have all, you'll have all three vaccines people can somewhat choose from, depending on which, what's available geographically to you. But the Johnson Johnson one is just one that we're very excited about because for you know working class individuals, you know nine to five jobs, maybe seven days a week, or maybe you're working two jobs having to leave twice just to get the vaccine, the practicality of that we recognize is tough. So more to come. Um, I promise you every week, uh, Kimberly, you're welcome to sneak that question in. Where are we with Johnson Johnson? I will keep you updated as I keep clearing more and more about it. Okay. Thank you, Dr. G. So on previous calls, you've mentioned that the typical vaccine take up to 10 years. How did we get to where we are so fast? Ah, I love this question. And this is one of my favorite questions that I love answering, and sometimes with different jokes or different analogies. But I love it because it really shows, to some extent, actually, this wasn't that quick. It was just fortuitous. So how do we get here? Great question. We got here because of history and because of investment. History. Coronaviruses, up until about 2003, coronaviruses, you know, med students, physicians, even nursing school, right? You know, well, you know, nursing school, public health schools. We learned about them, but not in any context of, you know, something to be worried about. Coronaviruses caused the common cold, 
that was about it. You know, we, you know, we acknowledged it, tipped our hat to it, moved on. 2003 was when we had our first global crisis emerge. It was a coronavirus resulting in mortality. That was SARS-CoV, resulting in 10% mortality, ravaging Southeast Asia, countries like Singapore and uh, Taiwan, for instance. Knowing that how bad that coronavirus was, they did exactly what we did. They launched ways to figure out cures. They started with convalescent plasma. They tried other antiviral medications. Then vaccine trials began, right, vaccine research. About three years into SARS-CoV, it went away, right? The hygienic interventions, physical distancing, face mask, and hygiene helped it go away. However, those vaccine trials continued. That, well, continued, but then ultimately stopped. They were like, well, SARS-CoV is no longer around. You really don't need a vaccine. But we got three to four years of vaccine insight into coronaviruses. 2013 rolls around. The Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, MERS, pops out in the Middle East. Again, same thing. All right, what weapons can we use to cure this? So antivirals were being examined again, conflict plasma, and vaccine technology. And these, you know, researchers, these men and women were like, wait, we have some insight with SARS-CoV. What do we have to do for this vaccine to make it a little bit different? And this is where we take some excitement out of the spike protein. A little bit different, yeah, just like a zebra's tail is different from a horse's tail, different from a cat's tail. still has a lot of very similar features. So even though there are different species of coronaviruses, that spike protein is somewhat similar. So we just, the vaccine technology just went straight into that. And they began even some human trials to help with MERS-CoV. But, again, the hygienic intervention worked. That went away. But another three to four years of vaccine insight. SARS-CoV-2 rolls around. SARS-CoV-2, right, the sequel to SARS-CoV, shares about 70% similar genetic features of SARS-CoV. Now, suddenly, we have another vaccine. Uh, we have another reason for the vaccine to reemerge. So all the lessons we've learned from 17 years of vaccine technology, from SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, went back to those drawing books and then said, still looks like protein. You think it will just work with the same little bit of tweaking for SARS-CoV-2? And sure enough, right in December, many pharmaceutical companies were already beginning to study it, knowing what was happening in November 2019 in Wuhan, China. Pharmaceutical companies reemerged, grabbed their playbooks, and were like, oh, a little bit of tweaking? Hey, our mouse model's working. Late December, early January, many of these pharmaceutical companies started launching into phase one trials. Now, this is the part where I'm going to... So, yes, we took advantage. Took advantage. We were, we were blessed with knowing we had 17 years of history of coronavirus vaccine insight to allow us to get the scientific insight we needed to make coronavirus vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 where we're at today. But there's one more hurdle we needed to overcome. Going from phase one to phase two to phase three, you need, a pharmaceutical company needs about $100 million to $200 million worth of investment. Why? Well, it's for supplies, it's for people, right? So millions and millions of dollars of investment. And I'm not sure if any of our listeners have ever tried to raise that much funding. That takes time. Well, on average, going from phase one to phase two to secure that much funding can take two to three years. But we're faced with a pandemic, right? That's two to three years in non-pandemic times. During the pandemic and every country realizing, hey, they're susceptible to getting COVID, come into their communities, every country invested in economic, uh, in economic investments to the companies, whether they're homegrown companies like out of India and out of Turkey and out of the UK, or just international companies, right? We're going to invest in Pfizer. We're going to invest in Moderna. Great. They began investing and saying, take whatever economic capital you need so you can move at the pace of science. In addition, every intellectual mind working in vaccine labs stopped their work, right? Dr. Bumpus from last week, an HIV vaccine expert, her lab converted into coronavirus vaccine technology. 
every intellectual mind working on vaccines stopped and now just began to work on the coronavirus vaccine. So you got investment economically and intellectually from the entire world. So January to August, August was when phase three trials launched almost universally throughout the world. That was the pace of just science. You didn't have to stop for you know, hiring new people. You didn't need to stop for economic investment. You had all the ingredients you needed to just move at the pace of science, recruit patients for this purpose and so forth. It's fantastic. It's one that I hope we can continue modeling moving forward because the delay sometimes we see in science isn't because of science or intellect. Usually other reasons, man-made reasons. So you just saw science move at the pace of science. I will say, though, Kimberly, not that fear to anyone. If this wasn't a coronavirus outbreak, and this was a very different type of virus that decided to cause harm, like someone, someone was joking that maybe to our listeners is this known or not, but the rhinovirus is one of the most common viruses to cause the common cold. Rhino just came for nose. You can think of a rhinoceros if you like. If that ever became lethal, it is not a lethal virus, but if that ever became lethal, we have probably four to five years before we come out with a vaccine for it because it would be the first time we ever needed it. So, Kimberly, that's a great question to our listeners. Were corners cut? No. Were safety protocols, you know, tweaked? No. We still did all the appropriate things to make sure we get an effective vaccine with minimal to no adverse events. And we had just 17 years of playbook uh, from the prior two coronaviruses in addition to a global investment. So, Kimberly, hopefully that helps put minds to ease at the moment. Yeah, that was a, a great explanation. So thank you um, kind of sharing the history of that. And, and like you said, hopefully that puts some um, folks' mind at ease. And talking about these, all these different um, uh, viruses, can you touch upon a, a lot of questions regarding the B117 from the UK? And I know you've mentioned the difference with the, the virus and different strains and DNA and children, all that kind of stuff. But a lot of questions that come from our community, are we talking about a different virus or a different strain? And, and what does this mean for us? Right. So great question. So you know, I'm still going to use that child analogy and then talk about what this ultimately means. So to a virologist, right, a doctor, a scientist who studies viruses, mutations are what an obstetrician, right, a doctor for OB, calls children, right? Every time a virus leaves someone, it will always mutate, right? It will be a little bit different than the virus that went into me, the virus that I out is different. Just like your children are different from the mother and father, right? That virus that sneezed out, still the, still the same species, that child you gave birth to, still a human, right? So that's right off the bat. If that analogy hopefully sinks in, that would, that's great. So mutations happen in viruses all the time. It's just part of their biology. Just like ours, human biology, having offspring, having children to continue the species. These mutations, 99.99% of the time, do nothing unique, right? What they help us out, though, on a side note, on a very on a side note, we've talked about contact tracing here in some of these calls. The way the majority of contact tracing happens is, and I'm going to just use names that are just coming to my head. All right, Tony. You got COVID, you got tested positive, tell me where you were for the last two weeks. And then Tony's like, oh, I hung out with my wife, Rebecca, yesterday. I was with my colleague the other day. No physical distancing, no face mask. And now we have to go back and go through who Tony's interacted with. There's another type of contact tracing called genetic contact tracing. We've done this for a few times here in the U.S. Um, the best example is out of a factory in Wisconsin where about three or four of their factory workers tested positive for COVID. And everyone goes, oh my gosh, is the factory itself a super spreading event? So what the factory ended up doing was investing in genetically testing the, the SARS-CoV-2. What does that mean? It means, well, if it's the same version of SARS-CoV-2, then, you know, one person came and spread it to everyone else within the factory. But if it's different strains, different mutations, then these didn't happen in the factory. People brought them in. And sure enough, 
these four co-workers brought four different strains into the factory from the community. So, right, this kind of, by the way, another side note emphasizes that the best way to not spread COVID in your building is to not bring COVID into the buildings. So mutations happen all the time. It allows us to track and follow a virus and, you know, be a little bit more succinct of how it, you know, travels within the community. Occasionally a mutation will cause the virus to potentially spread easier or potentially cause worse COVID-19 or do both. That doesn't happen often. It is a rarity. But does it, can it happen? Of course. Right? Just like you know, human beings, you get a person like Michael Phelps. That's not a common outcome. Michael Phelps is a very unique human being out of Baltimore who got tons of gold medals. But that is not the norm of human beings, right? No one does what he can do. So occasionally you will get a mutation that will allow this virus to spread easier. By easier, we usually mean you don't need as much viral load, right? So uh, like a good sneeze, you usually get people infected. A good breathing out, when you pass someone's breath for less than a second, probably not going to be infected. But this UK variant, you know, the European one, yeah, you probably could get it with not as much, you know, the contact probably may not be 15 minutes worth, maybe it's about five minutes worth of someone without a face mask and you're not wearing one and you're in close proximity. So that's what we mean by easier transmission. Some of the mutations can lead to more likelihood of developing severe COVID-19. That's the one that scares us all. Because for the most part, we know the majority of people who get COVID-19 will be okay. But if those numbers change a little bit because of the mutation, then those healthcare systems that you're already hearing are maxed out will continue to be maxed out. But regardless of the mutation, it is not a different species. It is still SARS-CoV-2, still SARS-CoV-2. And one thing coronaviruses always well preserve is their spike protein. So the vaccine should continue to be effective against it. And we are collecting that level of data in real time and finding that, yeah, no, you know, some preliminary data shows vaccines perfectly fine against these mutations. The final thing I would say about these mutations, though, is that you can still stop spreading them, right? Face mask, physical distancing works on all mutated SARS-CoV-2. So, Kimberly, just to simplify this again, it is not a different species, so it's still SARS-CoV-2. Just like your child is still a child, still a human, regardless if it acts like a monster or not, still human being, child. Um, still, you know, so those mutations happen. They are common. I know we're hearing about it. We're all becoming virologists to some extent, but these mutations are common. Happen all the time, every time the virus leaves us. Vaccine is likely to be effective against them, and the face masks and physical distancing will still stop the spread of them. So all of that are wins and victories for us. Back to you, Kimberly. And if I missed anything, Kimberly, by the way, because you know me by now, I go off sometimes on a tangent, and if I didn't land the plane, just let me know. I'm happy to reinforce some points or come back to that. Perfect. Plane is landed all good. <laughs> so, on, so on that note, as we've been wearing face masks, washing our hands, um, at the number of cases of flu gone down, and two, do we still need to get the flu shot? Oh, great question. Great question. So the answer is yes to the flu shot. So the flu is still going around. The flu is still going around. However, by yes, it has come down considerably. The numbers for the flu, you know, they come out, you know, kind of on a monthly basis, but it probably won't be until about the spring where we'll see how bad it was. Now, with that said, usually I can come in to these kind of calls in a non-pandemic time and be like, oh, let me tell you how the flu is doing. The fact that I've been working exclusively in the intensive care units for COVID-19, I'm not certain. I haven't come any, across any cases to date of someone having both COVID and flu. Um, doesn't mean that it's not happening, but to date I haven't seen that. However, let's look at our friends, Chile, Argentina, and Australia. Why look at them? Well, they're below the equator, right? So they had their winter. Right now they're in their summertime, so they had their flu season. That's what I'm trying to allude to. Chile and Argentina saw an 80 to 90% reduction in flu cases. Right? They went from hundreds of thousands to 10,000 cases. 
during the time where they implemented those COVID-19 hygienic interventions. In addition, they get in the flu vaccine. So hospitalizations for the flu were drastically reduced. And this goes back to recognizing that an airborne virus, regardless if it's the flu, regardless if it's SARS-CoV-2, face masking, physical distancing, hand hygiene, stop them all. So yeah, so my suspicion, especially not seeing a lot of cases, I'd have to look at those numbers a little bit more closely to give you kind of a comparison. Maybe that's what I'll try to do next week, Kimberly, and look side by side. Where were we last year and the year before and where are we now with flu? But my suspicion is we're likely following the same path as Chile, Argentina, Australia, and all of our other neighbors below the um, equator in regards to reduction of flu cases. Should you get your flu shot? Yes. Like, the flu is out there still, right? And right, you want to do whatever you can to not be hospitalized right now, which probably should be a theme overall, right? You want to prevent disease. We have a weapon to prevent disease, and that's the flu shot. One question I got from some of my patients, when should I get the flu shot in regards to the timing of getting the COVID shot? I would say try to at least space them a week apart. I wouldn't get the flu shot, well, I'm hesitant to say this, but I, I probably wouldn't, I would try to schedule the flu shot and then get your SARS-CoV-1 and 2 boosters. Um, I don't know the data, and I don't know if anyone has looked into this. I can get back to you guys on this next week. If, hey, can I get my first shot of SARS-CoV-2, the COVID vaccine, and then get the flu shot sometime in the middle and then get my third shot? Let me look into that. I don't know if that has been studied or been explored, and I don't know what the general recommendation has been to date. So for right now, until Dr. G comes back to you all with that recommendation, yes to get flu shot, yes to get a COVID vaccine when it comes available, and I will try to get the flu shot since it's readily available now, try to get it now a minimum of a week before getting your COVID vaccine. So that would be my recommendation, and I'll come back to you guys about the, you know, can you get it in between the booster shots. Kimberly, does that help? It does. Thank you, Dr. Jane. And so this has been um, a great conversation regarding the vaccines, and I was wondering if we could just kind of end the call talking about what I personally felt was some great news um, about um, being expanded statewide to include Marylanders 75 and older um, to be able to get the vaccine starting Monday. Yes. So let me tell you exactly what I have learned. Oh, let's just there. Hold on. All right. So starting Monday, uh, here in the state of Maryland, 1B becomes eligible. Eligible groups will be expanded statewide to include Marylanders 75 years and older, as well as anyone of any age living in assisted living or independent living facilities and developmental disabilities and behavioral health groups. Those now eligible in phase 1B also include, this is huge, and hopefully to our listeners, please listen to this, also include K through 12 teachers, education staff, and child care providers. For teachers, education staff, the state superintendent has submitted plans for how each county school system will vaccinate its teachers and critical staff. The plans will be implemented in the coming weeks. So phase 1B, 75 years and older, or regardless of age, if you are a school teacher or you know, child care provider, or you live in a nursing home or some living facility um, uh, for people for health reasons. Phase 1C, which would be a Marylander 65 and older, right, so 65 and older, will begin to roll out January 25th. So Kimberly and I will come back to you guys with that information. Kimberly will also share with you all on our listserv the, uh, the website that will be coming available for the vaccine rollout. So meaning, if you live in the state of Maryland, you click on this website, and it will tell you where you can go and get the vaccine. What does this mean, right? So yes, there might be pharmacies and so forth. You'd have to call and schedule an appointment, right? And so say the CVS down your street, it's part of the pharmacies that pop up on the, uh, that link that can uh, provide the vaccine. Find out how to best get it, meaning you'll have to give them a call and schedule an appointment. Here at Hopkins, and Kimberly, we will let our, our, our listeners know by next week, 
Hopkins and hospital systems overall will be one of the you know um, places you can get the vaccine. What we will be deciding today is, do we have to just prioritize our patients, or can we open it up to the community? Meaning, say you live, you know, down the street from Hopkins Bayview, but you get all your care at University of Maryland. Can you just go to Bayview, even if you're not one of their patients? More to come on that, if not later today, early next week. Meaning, there's a hospital, not just Hopkins, right? This is just all of Maryland. Does the hospital have to prioritize its outpatients first, or can it give it to just the general community? So more to come, a lot to come. Kimberly and I will keep you guys updated with this via our emails, and of course we'll regroup on this next Friday. Kimberly, do you know the website off the top of your head if you want to read it out loud to our listeners? If not, uh, let me see if I can find it. I, I not, do have oh, it. I do. Oh, perfect. So Go for it, my friend. It's COVID, C-O-V-I-D, Vax, V-A-X, .maryland.gov. So that's covidvax.maryland.gov, but I will definitely include it on my follow-up email. Awesome, Kimberly, awesome. Also, Kimberly, do you want to share any other information about the vaccine uh, about you maybe or no? Well, well, sure, but, but I just wanted to say that I did check out that website. You can go in there and enter in your zip code, and it will pull up all the places that are offering um, a vaccine starting Monday if you're in that category. So for my family, I entered the zip code. I saw that there were three giants that were nearby. Um, you can't register until Monday, but it was very simple to do that. There's also phone numbers, so I just wanted to pass that along. And two, yes, after this call, I am going to be walking over to get my first dose of the Moderna at 12 o'clock. So wish me luck. Oh, Kimberly, you have tons of luck. And to our listeners, please know we love you all. Every single one of you guys are important to us. You're doing a lot of great work. But I must emphasize, our colleague Kimberly, you know, comes to the hospital to execute these community engagement initiatives every day, every minute, every hour. So a little selfish on my end, but that is one person we want to protect. You know, she is a saint to us all. So Kimberly, good luck getting the vaccine. Hopefully you can just take the rest of the day off to Netflix or watch Amazon and just relax in case you get any mild symptoms from it or grow a second arm or third arm, as you said. <laughs> well, thank you. Unfortunately, Dr. Hale's not on the call to hear that, but I'll be sure to pass that message along. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So thank you again so much, Dr. G. This has been fantastic. Um, lots of great information, um, and I hope everyone on the call felt, so, uh, felt as well. Um, before I talk, turn the call over to Reverend Johnson, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners call scheduled for Friday, January the 22nd at 11 a.m., same bat time, same bat channel. So now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson, you want to offer our closing thoughts and a prayer? Absolutely, Kimberly, and thank you, and um, happy Friday to you and to Dr. G, and thank you for all the great information that was shared today. And good um, almost afternoon to everyone on the call. So today marks the actual birthday of the drum major for justice, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., although we celebrated on Monday. Uh, his birthday is actually January 15th. And as we face a pivotal time in the history of our nation, and as we have discussed the COVID-19 vaccine and the prospect for vaccinations, and continue to do so, especially within faith communities, I'm reminded of, and I want to frame our short meditation around some words attributed to Dr. King regarding the synergy between science and religion, as well as regarding human unity. So Dr. King said, and I'm quoting, science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. So let us pray. God of knowledge and wisdom, as we move toward full use of vaccinations that will hopefully stem the tide of this current pandemic, we thank you for the scientific knowledge that has gradually given us power over the COVID-19 virus, and also for the wisdom granted by faith that serves to control the careful use of these vaccines within diverse communities 
as well as the equitable distribution of such potentially life-sustaining measures. As we remember your servant, Dr. King, we're reminded that both science and religion are meant to uplift and improve conditions for all human beings, regardless of our perceived differences. But we hear from Holy Writs that of one blood you have made all nations. Help us, O God, to not only continue growing and expanding in scientific knowledge that will combat illness and disease, but also to continue growing and expanding in the religious value of compassion towards all. As science investigates and discovers, help us by faith to rightly interpret your desires for the greatest use of that knowledge on behalf of all humankind, that through science or religion, we may do no harm, but work in unrivaled harmony to bring about the greatest good for all. One more thing, Lord. As we come to the inauguration of the 46th President of the United States, your servant Dr. King also told us many years ago that we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. We pray that those who are working to help us live together as a united nation and as one human family will quickly overcome those whose evil desires bend towards seeing us perish together as fools. In your matchless name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's call. Please be safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.